0: If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. We've been preaching through the book of Galatians, and we turn the corner into the sixth chapter. In your sermon, or in your bulletin, there's a sermon outline with uh, the text there, and you can see where I will be going uh, this morning. So if you don't have a bulletin, uh, you can put up your hand, and Rob Pomeroy will get you one. Uh, so if you, if you need a bulletin or you need a sermon outline, put up your hand and he will get you one. Right here in the front, Rob, if you would. Here now from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, too, be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So far the reading of God's Word. I'm going to focus on those first two verses this morning. I want to begin by telling you a story, a story of two brothers. Two boys, John and Luke, lost their mother at a very early age. When they were teenagers, it was reported to them that their father had died in a plane crash over the ocean, and they had no other relatives. And so there were two families in the town who took them in. First, there was the friendly family. And the friendly family did all they could to make John feel welcome into their home, and they gave him a bedroom. And they fed him meals at their dinner table and encouraged him to join in the family activities. But not wanting him to feel any pressure, they didn't explain to him any of the family rules uh, that... Uh, were held in their family, and so instead they sort of hoped that he would observe what the rest of the children were like, and he would then, on his own initiative, uh, conform to the the way the family lived. John, of course, not knowing what was expected of him, frequently disappointed the family. Why? Well, he violated these unspoken rules because he hadn't heard them, right? and. He would feel judged and unconnected. So he became increasingly independent. He would come and go at any hour. He would play loud music in his room. He would have girls into his room uh, a variety of times and ways. And so when Mr. Friendly finally uh, tried to talk with him about his behavior, John said to him, I'm not your son. and. I will decide how I'm going to live. I appreciate the bedroom. I appreciate the meals, but I'm going to do whatever seems right to me. Well, the tension continued to build. You can expect that. And finally, Mr. Friendly had to ask John to leave. But fortunately for John, there was another friendly family in town that was willing to take him in and just start the cycle all over again. Now John's brother's experience was entirely different. That young fellow, his name you recall is Luke, and Luke was taken in by the Loving family. They wanted to make him feel welcome, they gave him a bedroom, they fed him at the family meals and encouraged him to join in the family activities, but they also wanted to avoid any misunderstanding and conflict, and so you might expect shortly after Luke arrived, Mr. Loving. Sat down with Luke and explained the family rules. Here's how we live in our family. And even though you're not my son, I will be glad to look out for you as best I can and to care for you. But as long as you live in my home, I will expect you to behave as the other children in my family do. Now, like any normal teenager, Luke sometimes broke the rules. And when he did, Mr. Loving sat down with him. He would point out what had happened and what he'd done wrong, and he'd hold him accountable to the same standards as he did the other children in his home. And Luke sometimes resented this, but he did come to understand that it was always done in love. And in fact, he came to realize he, he avoided a lot of trouble After a few months, Mr. Loving approaches Luke, and he says to Luke, you know, since you're living here like a part of the family, we would like to make it official. If you feel like this is where you'd like to stay, then we would like to adopt you and make you our son. And Luke gladly accepted the offer, committed himself to the family, and in doing that, one day he was changed from being an orphan who merely resided in the house to being a son who now enjoys officially all of the benefits and the privileges and the responsibilities that come with belonging to the loving family. Now, let's suppose... John's and Luke's father did not die in the ocean, but made his way to a desert island, and there he was discovered and brought back to the mainland, and he's reunited with his sons, and he hears their story. Here's my question to you. Which family do you think he would thank the most? The friendly family who gave John a bedroom and meals and food, but couldn't bring themselves to have any accountability in his life. Or the loving family who took Him in and trained Him and adopted Him into their family? Which one? Well, the answer, I think, is obvious, isn't it? And according to the Bible, there really is a heavenly Father who is going to come again and evaluate how the church has done in caring for its family. And we want to be a friendly church, we want to be friendly, and I think we are a friendly church, but we want even more than that. Because as you read through the New Testament, you see clearly the relational commitments that are incumbent, that are obligatory upon brothers and sisters as they live together in the church of Jesus Christ, in the family of God, and what do we do? We serve one another, we look out for one another, we care one another. We forgive one another. And if you look at our passage today, if somebody gets tangled up in a, in, a, in a pattern of sin, you know what we do? We seek to restore one another. And so, if you look at your outline today, there's five words from the text, very interesting, five words I just want to point out to you for your consideration today. They are the words, caught, restore, Gently, watch, and bear. And these five words are a wonderful summary of what we need to know and what we need to do as we think about ourselves as agents of God in the lives of our brothers and sisters, okay? And I would say that it's in all the circles of relationships. So if you're married, this is especially important for you. If you're a parent, a mom or a dad, this is especially important for you. If you're in a home fellowship group or in in a small group relationship, this is especially important to you. If you have Christian friends, this is very important to you. If you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ, this is critical to understand. And so we come to this first word. He says, if any of you is caught in any transgression. And the word caught is the same word for snare, the trap that the hunter uses. And what the Bible teaches all over the place is that we can be trapped in sin. And again, it's a thread through the whole Old and New Testament, but you go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Of course, Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, and Cain and Abel are right away, are in conflict. You know the story. And God says to Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And it's actually a terrifying picture of, of, a, of an animal poised to Pounce and crush its prey. Or it's the word, the word, again, caught for ensnared is a trap that grabs the leg and you can't get loose. Does that surprise you that sin is like a snare? <laughs> it shouldn't surprise you. It's true in your own life, isn't it? And you get caught up in habits and patterns of thinking and acting that you know, and it's called any transgression, you know, miss the mark, miss the mark of what God has. God's way is straight and true, and we develop patterns of falling off to the right or to the left. We studied here in Galatians just a few weeks ago. The fact that Paul says for Christians, the flesh, the sinful nature, is at war with the spirit, right? It's not just non-Christians who struggle. The flesh is at war. There is a battle, and what did we say from Paul Tripp again and again, teach yourself, teach your children, there's a war going on for your heart every day. And it's not only true for you, but this morning, according to our text, it's true for the person sitting right next to you okay? It's true for the person sitting right next to you, and they are going through temptations and trials that you might not know anything about, and they have struggles. Moms and dads, your children don't wake up in the morning and say to themselves, let's see, what can I do today to make mom's life miserable? They don't wake up and say, what can I do to really screw things up? They don't wake up like that. But then they start walking through the world. And the sinful nature of the flesh starts to come. And the world and the flesh and the devil start to whisper in their ear. You can go off that way. They whisper and they seduce and they lie. And pretty soon we fall into patterns that we never thought that we would. And just as it happens in your life, it happens in the person who's sitting right next to you, and you become ensnared like the coyote or the dog or the wolf that's trapped in the trap. Now, are those people doomed once they are caught? Are they doomed? No, we know better than that. They're not doomed. They're just caught, just like we sometimes are caught. And God knows of the struggle with sin and the problems with sin. And so, as we've studied through Galatians in chapter 4, 4 through 7, we hear of the great work of God. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And since you are sons, God sent something else. He not only sent His Son into the world, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And so as Christians, we are learning every day to embrace our legal rights as Christians, that is, our justification our redemption, our adoption, that work of Jesus Christ that legally makes us right with the Father. But then the Spirit is inside of us. And he says, you who are spiritual, this is really interesting, you who are spiritual, he's not talking about you who are super Christian. That's the super Christian. It's not just the elders or the pastor or the Sunday school teacher. You who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit and are now seeking to be in step with the Spirit. Martin talked about that, just wanting to be in step with the Spirit. You now who are in step with the Spirit, don't be surprised when the guy next to you, who might be your husband or the lady next to you who might be your wife or your children or someone in your group, don't be surprised when they get caught, trapped, trapped, in a pattern of life that is off the mark. But He says, and this is the second word, I have a mission for you, and that mission is restore. Restore, what a wonderful word. If the first word, caught, describes their condition, the second word, restore, is apparently the calling of God to step into people's lives because God wants to use you to restore them. Are you ready for that assignment? Are you? You who have the Spirit of God inside you that cries, Abba, Father, you who are spiritual, not super spiritual, just you who have this Holy Spirit, I have an assignment for you, Jesus says. However, we are reluctant. We are reluctant. Why are we reluctant to do this? Well, the answer is because the Christian life is sometimes messy and we don't like mess. Isn't that true? If the Christian life was just me and Jesus, Jesus and me, oh, rapture, oh, joy, oh, wonderful joy, if it was just vertical, the Christian life would be just so peachy, But then there's the rest of us. There's the rest of you, you see. And Jesus says, I put you in a family. Marriage is wonderful, but sometimes marriage is messy. Parenting is wonderful. Sometimes parenting is messy. Being in a church family like ours is wonderful. But sometimes it's messy. Being in a small group is wonderful, but sometimes it's messy. Why? Because of relationships that are so difficult sometimes. But does Jesus give us the excuse, oh, they're going to call me self-righteous. They're going to be mad at me and call me holier than thou. Who am I to say anything? Does He let you get away with that? He doesn't. Here's what Jesus tells us to do. He says, restore them. Matthew 18, verse 15, all right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And this is just one of the passages that may sound strange to you, but it sounds strange to you that you're supposed to work things out with other people when you see them missing the mark and, and experiencing transgression because you don't realize that when you become a Christian, you not only have a relationship with God, but now you have all these other relational commitments. Relational commitments. In your bulletin, I gave you a homework assignment. This little pamphlet... I've started giving it out in the membership class, but many of you joined the church before I started giving this out in the membership class. This is your assignment to take home and to read. This is a marvelous statement that I've adapted from the Peacemakers ministry that speaks about the relational commitments. I don't read it now because I'm preaching, but I'll I'll just give you heads up. Take it home. Make a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and and sit down and read this because what we are committed to as a church family are at least six basic relational commitments, and the first one is to peacemaking. If you have a problem with somebody else, you're going to work it out because it's wrong to live with grudges and years of bitterness. And then we're committed to preserving marriages. Marriage is hard, but whereas the tendency is just to bail out. We have to do the hard work of sustaining marriages. And sometimes divorce is permitted and necessary, and sometimes it's not. We have to work these things through, and then we have to help people heal. And then we're committed to protecting our children. And this church, we are committed that this church family will be a safe place and a great place for your children your teenagers, to gather and to enjoy the fellowship of God's people and the nurture of God's house. And then we are committed to biblical counseling. And what we say by this, and you need to understand this, is that when we struggle with sins and problems and have all this baggage in our life, we do not turn first to Sigmund Freud. We do not turn to Dr. Phil. You might like Judge Judy. She's a blast to watch. We don't turn to Judge Judy. We turn to God and His Word, and we say, what does your Word say about the issues that we're wrestling with in our life? What does the Bible say? We're committed to biblical counseling, and then, of course, we're committed to confidentiality. There's a a whole page about gossip. And you know, All the big, big, bad sins, murder and stealing and adultery. You know what else is in that list whenever they make those lists? Gossip. So we're committed to guarding people's reputations and not spreading bad reports about people. And then finally, we're committed to accountability. You can read about that, but we are committed to accountability. In fact, when you join the church... You say, I'm giving permission to the leadership of the church to help me out when I'm struggling. Now, church discipline is, 99 times out of 100 times, it's done informally. It's informally. It's discipleship. But listen, if your husband abandons the family and runs off, if your wife abandons the family and runs off, if your son gets into a violent gang, wouldn't you want the church to go after them and plead with them and love on them and draw them back? And if it was you, wouldn't you want that too? We want to restore people who are caught. Now, this word restore is very interesting. And again, Paul Tripp, he says, you need to understand the difference between remodeling and restoring. There are some contractors here in this room, you know, and I've seen some of their work. They take a a house, one of these beautiful North Shore mansions, and, and... and they do amazing things. They're old and broken down, and the roof's been leaking, and the paint's peeling, and the and the wiring is old. And they can slap up some paneling and throw in a chintzy little dry uh, chintzy little drop ceiling and get a twenty-five dollar vanity. But that's not what these guys do. You ever watch Bob Vila in this old house? You know, they take that. Home and they clean it up and strip it down, and then they rebuild it according to the original architectural design and the intention of the builder, and it is beautiful. And if you went to Bob Vila and said, I really like the way you remodeled that house, he would say, I did not remodel that house. I restored it. That's the word Paul uses here, restoration. That is our mission. That is our goal, to see someone not just superficially changed. And this is where the church often messes up. Because you can't, if you just help people, as Martin said last week, help them superficially staple on some different alternate behaviors, you can remodel it on the surface with some paneling and a chintzy drop ceiling, but you're not dealing with the heart. We have to deal with the heart. And the main job of restoration is not you fixing anybody else, but you helping a person come back to Jesus and say, what's going on in your life here? And what's going on in your relationship with the Lord? To understand the heart beneath the behavior, to give them Christ. What he's talking about here in restoration is not just self-help. It's not just a quick one, two, three solution. It's to see them back in vital relationship with the Lord and changed by Him. Now, the third word begins to tell us. You see, the first word describes the, the situation, the condition of your friend. The word restore, well, that's your, what you hope to accomplish as you interact with them, but the third word describes the characteristic of the engagement, the interaction. What is that word? You should restore him gently. Oh, really? Have you seen what he did? I don't want to enable him by being soft on him. I'm not the mamby-pamby type. And yet, this is the word that Paul uses not just once, not just twice, more than four times. This is a word that describes Jesus Christ who says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And when Paul gives that amazing statement of the calling of the Christian in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 and 2, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. There's the word with patience, bearing with one another in love. And in Colossians 3, in this spectacular statement of how we are to live in relationship with each other, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, same word, for gentleness and patience. And even when... The young Pastor Timothy is called to to engage with his opponents who seem to be attacking him. He says, correct them with all what? Gentleness. In 2 Timothy 2.25. So apparently this is a very important word to describe the, the character of the interaction we have with each other, especially when there's friction or there's a problem. Gentleness. For some of us, this is harder than others. So, what I would say is if you are tempted to take your finger and to wag it at someone and say, you're bad, I'd ask you, how would you feel if someone does that to you? And I ask you to consider what it would be like if someone came to you and said, you know, I see that you're struggling here. And it looks to me like you're out of touch with the Lord in this area of your life. I don't know your heart, but that's what it looks like to me, and I would like to help you with this. Okay? Is there a difference between those? So here they are, like the dog with his leg caught in a trap, and you come to them. You come to the dog who's in the trap and you come raging toward the dog and you're shouting at him. You say, You stupid dog, don't you know what you did to get yourself in all this trouble? What's that dog going to do as you approach? That dog's going to snarl. That dog's going to try and bite you. And so will your wife. And so will your husband. And so will your son. And so will your daughter. And so will your father. And so will your mother if that's how you come to them. And I'll tell you, they're probably not thinking rationally right at this time. They probably are going to respond to you not rationally, but emotionally. And if you don't come gently to them, their emotions are going to become riled up, they will become defensive, and... In the brain, I don't understand the brain that well, but there's this place called the amygdala, and that's where the seat of the emotions are, and then there's the neocortex, and that's where rational thought happens, and I'll tell you what happens, is that the amygdala tackles the neocortex, that is to say, the emotional center of the brain can easily overpower, in the moment of interaction, the rational part of the brain. And they'll snap at you and they'll bite at you and emotions overpower rational thinking and the interaction gets messy. So then they snap at you. How do you respond? "Hmm. I'm trying my best. I'm here to help you. The dog doesn't know that. For all the dog knows is you're going to put a trap on his other leg. The trap is hurting them. They may or may not know it, but they snap at you. Now, your amygdala gets emotional, and you get emotional, and you respond back to them, and the emotions rise. Then you wipe your hands of the whole thing, and you say, well, I tried. I did my best. I'm through. So here's what we need to remember, two things about being gentle right in this moment. The first thing to remember is that God in His love for the other person has made you aware of their situation and their struggle and their heart. And He made, that, made you aware of it so that you can be a part of the restoration process, okay? That's what you need to know. God let you know this. Now, you're a part of His healing restoration process. And the second thing you need to know is that they probably cannot see themselves too clearly right now. There are times when I tell you that I have a life verse. You know, I have a favorite verse or two or three or ten that I've memorized and that I recite to myself a lot. Glorious verses of the Bible. You probably have them memorized as well. But one of my life verses is Psalm 36, verse 2. Psalm 36, verse 2. I didn't put it on the back of your sermon outline, I don't believe. But it says, He flatters himself too much. To see or detect his own sin. And this is one of the most important verses of the Bible that I need to remember. And it's right there. He flatters himself too much. John flatters himself too much to see or detect his own sin. This week, I was reading the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. What a guy! Ben Franklin fascinating fellow. Actually grew up in a Presbyterian home, learned the Bible and the catechisms. Later on in his life, he wandered a bit. Uh, But Franklin knew that he was a very vain man. He wrote about it. He was a vain man and a proud man, and he uh, wrote it down, admitting it many times. And then he says this, I was surprised to find myself much Fuller of my faults than I had imagined. You know, what's Franklin saying? You know, I, whenever I would stop and actually look, I had more faults in me than I ever imagined. And one blogger that I read, she said, You know, you can have a mirror, but you much prefer your self-portrait. You don't mind it when the mirror gets all foggy because you prefer your self-portrait and you paint this lovely portrait of yourself. And will you include the trap that has tangled and snared your leg in that self-portrait? No, you'll do it from the waist up. And we really like that self-portrait. And so when we go to another person, you don't go to them and rip the paintbrush out of their hand. You really have to gently, gently say, hey, give me the paintbrush for a minute and take the paint and say, let's let God unfog the mirror and look, and maybe He could help us see what's going on. And then we get forth, we get a very appropriate word of warning. He says, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. And I think this is remarkable that He has to say this, because we're going to be well-meaning and wanting to help people. Surely, we don't need this this word of warning, do we? Huh? Oh, but we do. He's very clear. Watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Who? But I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual, right? If you want to be the part of the transforming work of Christ in the life of somebody else, you have to begin with yourself. Right? Yes. Is that what we always do? No. And so the Bible says when you interact with someone else, you have one eye on them, of course you do, but the other eye has to be on yourself, on yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So Jesus gives us the guidance on how to do this. You know this from Matthew Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, do you know these words? Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you have an eye on them, but then you have an eye on yourself. That's what Jesus says. This is how how you do it. Husbands and wives, parents and children, small groups together. And the reason this is so important, especially in the family, these rules are for the family too, the reason it's so important is it's way easier to believe that your wife is a far bigger sinner than you are. And it is so easy to believe that your child is a way bigger sinner than you ever were. And so, that kid on Wednesday night at 10 o'clock hasn't started his homework that's due at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning. And he comes and tells you. And you have had it with all this procrastination. He's trapped in procrastination, he's trapped in laziness. But it's right at that moment you have to ask yourself this question Are you ever guilty of procrastination? Are you ever lazy in your life? Be honest, and I know that I am. And so, what do you do? Your amygdala is saying, freak out! But your sanctified rational thought, biblical thought, is saying, wait a minute, let me look at my own heart, let me see myself, and now let me come to a sinner as a sinner. Did you hear that? Now let me come to a sinner as a sinner and say, you know what? I've got good news for you. There's a Savior. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus, and He came to rescue and redeem and save and restore sinners. And you know what? We're both like this. And I understand what you're going through. And I understand why you make the choices you make. Those choices are wrong according to God's standard. And when I make them, they're also wrong, according to God's standard. But I understand why you make those choices because I'm like you, and good news is there's hope for us. There's hope for us. How do we move forward now? You know, sometimes Nina will say to me, look, John, you're not ready to be dealing with this right now. Sometimes Charlotte will say to me, Dad, I think you need to push the pause button here. Because in the direction where you're going, I don't think this is going to be helpful. What are they saying? Watch yourself right now. And what that does is it frees me up for this fifth word. That fifth word is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Because the royal law of Scripture is to love your neighbor as yourself, as James 2 verse 8 says, it is to carry each other's burdens for they are carrying a very heavy burden, a terrible burden. Last no- on Friday night at Christianity Explored, Rico Tice was brilliant when He said to all of us as we were watching, He said to us, people need to know that the greatest problem in the world is not global warming. It's not political insurrection. It's not economic disaster. The greatest problem in the world is sin. That's the greatest problem in the world that every human being bears. And God is calling you to assist someone who is carrying the greatest burden in the world. And you get under the load with them gently and with love, filled with His Spirit. Oh, it's so much easier just to be a judge, it's so much easier just to be the jury. So much easier to be the jailer. You're grounded. Jesus says, bear their burden. And you know why he has the right to say that to you? Because he says, I took up your infirmities, I carried your sorrows. And that marvelous 53rd chapter of Isaiah that speaks of the work and person of Jesus Christ. We rush through Isaiah 53 to say, by His stripes we are healed, but verse 4 says this, Surely He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. What a verse. What shame do you have? Jesus says, give it to me. You have shame? What guilt do you bear? Jesus says, give it to me. What sorrows make you weep on your pillow at night? He says, I will collect your tears. I died for that most terrible burden of yours and took the penalty all and drank the wrath of God to its dregs. It is gone for you. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weak and burdened, and I will give you rest. Have you come to Jesus Christ With your guilt, your shame, your sorrow, your tears. Have you? Listen, this is not pop psychology or self-improvement. You must come to Jesus. You must have a relationship with Him. You need Him. You need His Spirit in your heart. That's what you need. Your greatest need is for Him. And if you have Him, then He says, do you see that fellow over there? He's carrying burdens. I want you to go and get under His burden with Him and carry it. That's how you do it. Again, somewhere in my mind, I believe this is Paul Tripp who says, God did not just drop a book on us. The Bible is wonderful. I'm in no way denigrating the Bible, but God didn't just drop a book of instructions on us. He sent His Son to bear our iniquities, to carry our sorrows. And that Son now lives in you and in me. Who do you know who needs you? The Spirit of God is calling to you. Who do you know? Will you pick up the phone? Will you say, could we have breakfast or lunch? Could we get together? I'm going to share with you what Jesus has done for me. Let's go to him now in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we look, we will be reading about these relational commitments in the North Shore Community Church. We'll be looking at those relational commitments. We pray that you, by your Spirit, will assist us, strengthen us, And use us in each other's lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.